Hello and welcome to the Mission Recovery Podcast. My name is Maruf Ahmed and I'm the co-founder of Quit Genius, the world's leading digital clinic for substance addictions. I'm going to be speaking to inspiring individuals about their journey to addiction recovery. Recovery should be celebrated and the goal of Mission Recovery is to break down the stigma surrounding addictions and to empower others to live addiction-free lives. This is Mission Recovery. Welcome to the Mission Recovery Podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by the lovely Claudia Christian. Claudia is a well-known actress who starred in many hit shows such as Babylon 5, Nip Tuck, and Criminal Minds, to name just a few. Claudia has a powerful recovery story about how she overcame her addiction to alcohol and has since done some amazing work to support others who are struggling with addiction. Claudia, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Amazing to have you. For the listeners who may not know who you are, tell us a little bit about your very successful career, Claudia. Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, I started acting as a child and I got my first TV series in the early 80s when I was a teenager. I started on the hit show Dallas and then I got TV series and movies and I started doing studio films and I've been working for now almost 40 years. About 25 years ago, I started doing animation and voiceover work as well. So in addition to TV and film, I also do, um, I did an animated Disney film, Atlantis. I recently did the Netflix series, um, Blood of Zeus animation, anime, and I do a ton of games like Skyrim and Halo and Fallout 4 and uh, Guild Wars, uh, World of Warcraft, Call of Duty, you name it, I'm in it. Um, I love that creative aspect of my life. But in some very strange way, I'm, I don't want to, this is such so off-putting. I don't want to say that I'm grateful for uh, what happened to me when I, when I started misusing alcohol, but it has given me a lot of joy to help people that are struggling with alcohol use disorder. So my alcohol Uh, misuse led to this passionate life of um, advocacy for medication assisted treatments and specifically the Sinclair method. And I opened a nonprofit, um, made a documentary about it because it really did save my life, but also gave meaning to my life. So Mm. what I, what I'm really truly grateful for is having this very, very strange dual life where on one hand I I get to be creative and do what I'm passionate about, which is acting. And then on the other hand, I get to help people, which ever since I was a child, I've always, always wanted to find a way in my life to give back or to help people. So it's, it's sort of like it feeds your soul and it feeds your heart at the same time. So I'm really, really fortunate to have two, two careers that I'm enormously passionate about. That's incredible. That's so, so incredible, especially like the rewarding nature of all the the work that you're doing. And we're definitely going to dive into that in a bit more detail, Claudia. I wanted to almost uh, dive into a bit more detail around your successful acting career, because I know you had your big break when you shot and got the starring role for Babylon 5. So talk to me a little bit about how that changed your life. Well, that's funny because I was doing, I uh, did a big studio picture called Clean and Sober with Morgan Freeman and Michael Keaton. And I really thought, oh, I'm going to go into film. And <laughs> everyone's dream back in the 80s, you know, I'm going to be a film actress. Now it doesn't matter if you're in TV or film because television is 
the same quality as film yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, if you're on a Netflix or HBO series, you're in film pretty much. So back then, uh, I, I had this, I went up for the audition and I got the offer of this five-year series of science fiction, which really was like the the, the ugly, uh, you know, as they call it, the ugly step stepchild of, uh, of television. Nobody really, especially in Los Angeles, thought that science fiction was anything worthwhile. Hmm. And especially if it wasn't um, a Star Trek spinoff, then it was just nothing. So I said to my agent, I said, you know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. It's a five year commitment and I'm awfully young and I just did these two big films. So maybe it's not the right time. And she said, oh, sweetheart, this will never last past the first season. It's it's not a Star Trek spinoff and it's science fiction. Nobody likes science fiction. Just do it for the experience. And I said, well, OK, you know, the character is really great. I'll do it. And lo and behold, um, it it really resonated with fans. In fact, uh, in the UK, we were on TV on Friday and Saturday nights, you know, back to back. Very popular. Prime time. The prime time, man. <laughs> I remember going to the UK and be, being on the tube in London and somebody saying, oh, my God, Commander of all of us. So that's when I knew, well, the Brits get sci-fi, Americans not so much. But now, of course, science fiction is everywhere and um, it's pervasive as all heck. So. I, yeah. I, it changed my life in the sense that it gave me a, a very, very different kind of fandom. And that is genre fandom is mm. incredibly loyal. They've supported me through my alcohol use disorder, through, um, you know, funding my documentary. Every book I've written, my fans will will purchase just to support me. And that's a kind of fandom that I had never experienced in nighttime soaps or or in film or in other television work that I did. This is an all-encompassing, incredibly just humble, loyal, supportive group of people. Mm. And they've touched my life in such a way that many of them have become my friends. Um, Babylon 5 also took me around the world and my game career and my animation career took me to places that, you know, I, I maybe I wouldn't have gone to. I've been to Australia and New Zealand many times um, just based for, on conventions and things that allowed me to travel and meet people. And it, it really changed my life for the better. I say Babylon 5 was probably the, the best job I've done to date just because of the world it opened up for me, which mm. was the fandom and the traveling. Yeah, that's incredible. And uh, it's interesting how you said here, there that obviously the fans are incredible, supported you throughout some of your friends now. I read a really interesting slash scary story, Claudia, of a time where it went wrong and there was a fan <laughs> at a Comic-Con convention that tried to shoot at you. Is that true? It is true, yes. Um, there, was a <laughs> there was a fellow that, uh, let's just say he was a passionate fan of mine. And um, he would always knit me things. And I'm not making this up, but he worked yeah. for the postal office. And so he worked in the post office uh, and he was a delivery man. And um, he would knit while he had his, his breaks. So he used to send me all these things. And I went to one convention and, and met him briefly. And then I went to another convention on the East Coast. And uh, he showed up in a... Um, one of these Star Trek characters, the Tribbles, he was in a giant Tribble outfit. It's from okay. a particularly famous episode of classic Star Trek. So he's in a Tribble outfit and he comes up and he hands me this giant knitted blanket, matching pillowcases. And I'm of course like, how am I going to schlep this home? But I'm nice. And I'm, thank you so much. I love hot pink. You know, uh, this is so great. And he waddles away and that's that. And then 
that two hours later, the same person comes back because I can recognize the slippers. He had these bear slippers on. But the triple outfit now is morphed into this thing that's got blood all over it and, and electronics sticking out of the head, like some homemade, you know, scary looking triple. And I said, oh, wow, what an outfit. You know, I'm trying to make little friendly chatter. And he said, well, now you will be morphed too. And the guy pulls out a gun and shoots it. And it was a real gun with a what's called a full blank. We use them in, in movies, but they're incredibly dangerous at clo close range. In fact, um, John Eric Hexum and Brandon Lee were both killed by full blanks or even half blanks. They can kill you. Um, that's why you shoot them at a distance and you have safety measures in place in film and television. Anyway, this guy shot it at close range. Luckily, it hit my bizarrely... Uh, <laughs> deformed rib cage, which has an extra rib on that side, which is very strange. I do have an extra rib on one side, in addition to like like two extra ribs. So <laughs> it hit that, um, got a massive hematoma, of course, fell to the ground, thought I was dead. Now, what makes the story kind of amusing is he's dragged off and he's banned from conventions for life. Mm -hmm. And of course, I, you know, continue the convention. I'm, I'm okay, but I'm still, you know, I'm still sore and I'm a little bit wary at this point of what else is going to happen. But I get through it. Ten years later, I'm back at the same convention in the same place back east, and I'm now with uh, my boyfriend. And I have a security guard because it's where this guy lives. And we think, well, he's probably never going to show up, but you never know. And I'm standing there. I'm sitting there, and people are in line. And suddenly, I see those same slippers, and the guy's wearing no, jeans right. and a t-shirt, and the and the bear slippers. And he comes over to the table, and at this point, my bodyguard tiny is you know looming over me i'm like this is the guy this i'm telling my boyfriend this is the guy this is the guy and i'm trying to be cool i'm like this is that guy i'm i'm just you know veins are popping out of my head it's him it's him what am i gonna do am i gonna get up and run i mean i'm freaking out and he, he waddles over to the table and tiny the bodyguard is sort of looking at him and like ready you know with his taser and everything and he, he bends over and he looks at me he goes i bet you don't remember me Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what? I do because you shot me. And he goes, Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my. And I'm thinking to myself, How many people have you shot, first of all? And how exciting is your life that you don't remember being shooting me and being dragged away in handcuffs and banned from conventions for life? I mean, who does this? Oh, man. The courage to almost come and like see you face to face again is, I guess, commendable to a certain degree. Cheeky bugger. Yeah. I mean, really? Yeah, I see. Oh. No, he was just um, just very naive to the whole uh, reality of the situation. But <laughs> I survived it. And I must say that, you know, other than I did get uh, some other weird things. A guy flew out to Vegas to a convention and... Um, was standing in line with my wedding ring that he said I left on our breakfast table in Minnesota. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've had a few stalkers. I did a, I did a movie called The Hidden, and um, I had a stalker who thought that I was from Venus and I brought the AIDS virus to planet Earth. Oh, man. You have had your fair share of crazy stories. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, did, did I hear you correctly? Was your body called, called Tiny? Yeah, he was. He, he, the, the convention gave me a six foot eight 
redheaded, um, magnificent looking Scotsman called Tiny for yeah. a bodyguard. Very it ironic. It was an ironic moniker, <laughs> yeah. obviously. Yeah, <laughs> man. No, I like it. I like it. A very unique name. But thanks for sharing that, Corey. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to dive into and almost change tack a little bit and, and discuss now is your recovery journey. So I think it'd be really helpful for the listeners if you could start right from the beginning and around your first interactions with alcohol and maybe talk to us about how it all started. Sure. Um, I have what I did not know before. I didn't really dive into it as a child or as a teenager, but I, I, I subsequently found out that I do have alcoholism on both sides of my family. I was a totally normal teenager. I was, other than the fact that I was a 40 year old trapped in a young body and I just wanted nothing more than to finish school and start working. So I had a bank account. I had money saved up to move out of the house. I, I did not party or, I mean, I had my experiences, obviously I was a teenager. I grew up Connecticut, but in California, when I went to school, a lot of people were smoking pot. I just never liked pot. There wasn't a whole lot of alcohol misuse, although there was some, we, we lost five football players to a drunken um, car accident and a bunch of cheerleaders as well. It was a horrific accident. The, the driver was drunk. So there was education around it. Um, but it wasn't something that I really, I didn't drink a lot as a teenager. I, I drank with some boyfriends and at parties. And then in my 20s, I was so focused on work. My, mm. I started working when I was 14 years old. So I was just working, 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 uh, modeling, acting, going to school, going to classes, doing everything I could to just get ahead. I was very focused on that. And in my 20s, I got married very young, 23, and my husband didn't drink a lot. And so I, I didn't drink a lot. After that, I lived with people who drank a lot, a restaurateur, an actor, you know, and, and my wine consumption probably went up a little bit. But once again, I was working so much that it was more like Friday night, a couple glasses of wine. Hmm. Then throughout the years, I really got into wine and I started collecting wine. So now I'm in my mid thirties and I'm collecting wine and I'm living with somebody who drinks a lot and I'm not drinking when I film, but I'm on my nights that I'm not working the next day. I'm definitely drinking wine, even if it's a weeknight. And then into my late thirties, I had a boyfriend say to me, God, I've never seen anybody drink as quickly as you. And then my mother came over and said, I do not believe the recycling the bottles in your recycling bin. This is something's wrong. Hmm. And, and I, and I realized I was gaining weight as well. You know, I had that sort of alcohol kind of puff and I just thought, you know, this is not serving me. So I'm going to stop. I'm just going to quit. And unbeknownst to me, when you do that, when you're a consistent drinker and you just quit all altogether, hmm. you cause what's called the alcohol deprivation effect. And this is what chronic relapsing is all about. This is why when people are in that pink bubble of rehab where they have no access to alcohol and they are in that beautiful honeymoon period of sobriety, they feel great two months in, three months in, and then those pesky cravings start to hit and the mental obsession starts to hit and you can't even finish composing an email without thinking, what time is it? Is it time to drink? Is it time to drink? Or you get that feeling in your skin of like, oh, you're in the supermarket and you see the wine and these endorphins start popping hmm. and, and you start remembering the opening of the bottle, the sound of the cork. You know, and, and so what's happening is you are reliving the drinking experience and that's triggering you. So I didn't know any of this. I just knew that for the first three months, I was fine. I was absolutely fine. I'd lost weight. I felt great. I looked great. And life was beautiful. And then 
one day I was out with a friend and, you know, uh, she was drinking and I thought, well, one glass of wine is not going to throw everything off. Clearly, I don't have a problem. I was just sober for four months or whatever. And of course, that one glass of wine you have and heroically you say, see, I had one glass of wine. I was fine. Then the next time you go out, you have two glasses of wine. And then by a week after that, you're buying a bottle on the way home to drink at home. And then you're back to opening up the wine cellar where your collection is. You see what happens. So this happened to me. And what happened after that, that break from alcohol is my alcohol deprivation effect really kicked in hard so that I went from being a light drinker to a normal drinker, to a social drinker, to a heavier drinker, to now a sober person and then a binge drinker. It -hmm. just radically changed my brain. I suddenly could not stop. I no longer had an off button. And that's when it got really scary. So I went from just being sort of a three time a week, you know, drinker to sober to binge. Like I would start and I couldn't stop. So then my life was broken down into episodes of am I binging or am I sober and working and happy and everything's fine? And, or am I sober and miserable because I'm craving, Mm. you know, white knuckling. It was not a very happy existence. So I tried a myriad of things. I tried uh, vitamin therapy, hypnotherapy, psychotherapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I went to a rehab facility. I, did AA 17 meetings in two different countries. Um, I was living in England and Los Angeles at the time. This was like six years of hell Hmm. of just struggling to find something that would help me. I tried ant abuse and it scared me so much because of all the side effects and the liver damage. And it was punitive. It wasn't restorative. It wasn't doing anything for my brain. I just thought this is the stupidest medication in the world. Make a long story short, um, this proceeded, you know, kept kept going and the binges kept getting worse. And my I would go for about nine months, maybe 11 months. I never made it to a year sober, never. And then I would relapse and then I did six months of sobriety. I mean, it was just awful. It was a horrible way to live. And I was constantly in that craving mode, that white knuckling, miserable mode. It was it was really rough. Or I was recovering from a binge. So mm-hmm. it was just it was just a brutal existence. And then one day back in 2009, I had a, um, a really bad relapse that I was recovering from. And I did it the way I had always done it, which is super dangerous. And that was I would go cold turkey. I didn't know anything about tapering. I didn't know anything about the risks involved of stroking out or DTs or anything. So I just went cold turkey again. And I really was losing motor function of my body. I couldn't get dressed. I, I you know, I, my... I was shaking. My hands were not doing what my brain was telling them to do. It was really, really scary. And I called a girlfriend of mine and I said, you know what? This feels really weird and dangerous. Mm. And I think I better go to a medical detox. I had never gone to one, but I just thought I better. I knew nothing. I mean, I didn't know anything. (laughs) Had I had a prescription for Valium or something, I could have done it myself at home. But Or had I had like one beer to taper, I could have done it myself. But I had no clue. None, which is really ridiculous considering how long I struggled with alcohol misuse that Mm. I didn't research this a little bit. But that changed the day I went to this medical detox, which was a very humiliating, once again, punitive experience where they were very shame-inducing and judgy and 
all of these were ex addicts, whether it was meth or alcohol, they were all ex addicts and they were just treating me like I was just a pariah. And, and eventually I got something to, to get rid of this, these withdrawal symptoms, uh, medication of some sort. And I said, you know what? I don't need this. I'm going home. I've got, I've got that one pill in my system. I felt totally fine checked myself out. And on the way out, I picked up like one of each flyer that was in the waiting room because everything was about how to get rid of cravings, how to fix yourself, how to fix yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was at such my wits end that I just took one of every flyer and took them home and started studying them. And one of them was for a shot called Vivitrol that said that it would promise to get rid of cravings. So I called the rehab, the, the, the detox center I was just in, and nobody answered the phone. And I left a message saying, I'd like to try this shot, even though it was super expensive. I just said, I was desperate. I knew mm. that the cravings were going to hit again. The second I detoxed, I knew that I was going to start craving again. And I'd be in that vicious circle again. So nobody called me back. And I started researching on my own. What was the ingredient in this? And as a background, I come from a family of physicians, researchers, cancer research, genetic engineers, doctors. My whole family's filled with people in the medical profession. Hmm. So I started researching this and it said naltrexone was the active ingredient. So I researched naltrexone and this book pops up, The Cure for Alcoholism by Dr. Roy Scott. And I'm thinking, yeah, right, cure, <laughs> sure. Bad, bad use of words. <laughs> um, they had a free chapter. I read the chapter and I was saying, geez, this really makes sense. It was about using naltrexone in a targeted manner to create what's called pharmacological extinction in the brain. So I read that free chapter. I ordered the book immediately. I called up my general practitioner and I said, I need an appointment as soon as possible. They let me in the next day. And I presented him with this information that I found online. And I said, look, this is what's in this, this shot. I don't want the shot in me because it seems like it might lead to depression if you use an opiate blocker 24 hours a day but I want the medication so I can take it in a targeted manner. The guy looked at me like I was asking for heroin. And he, and he said, literally, I will not prescribe you an opiate. And I said, well, sir, this is an opiate antagonist. Big hmm. difference. There's no way you can abuse this because it does not bring joy or happiness or a drug-like feeling. Nobody's ever been addicted to it. Nobody's ever overdosed on naltrexone. I, I knew. I had researched it. Yeah. And I said, this, there's no way that you can be. This is not a replacement drug therapy. This is not methadone. So he refused me. Um, and I went home and I ordered it from a, a pharmacy from India. And I waited and it took forever to get. So I called them and I was crying, this Indian pharmacy, <laughs> weeping on the phone saying, where's my package? It must be lost. So they sent another package. I ended up not getting it. At that point, I think I was three months sober by the time I got the medication. Yeah. So I got the medication. I immediately went and I bought myself a bottle of wine. And um, at that point, I was already craving. And I did my first session of the Sinclair method, which involved taking a 50 milligram tablet of naltrexone, waiting one hour and drinking. Mm. And I did it and that glass of wine just sat there. I poured it back in the bottle. I took maybe two sips. I tried it again a couple nights later and I managed to finish about a small glass, one small glass. Mm. And that bottle of red wine was sitting on my counter for over a week, which in my world prior to that, 
was, <laughs> there was never yeah. half a bottle of wine <laughs> laying around. There was never even three quarters or a, no, there was never a, any bottle of wine that had any wine in it. it was always finished by me. So yeah. that in itself was such a anomaly and a shock that I knew something was happening. And about three months, four months into the Sinclair method, um, I, I mentioned this in my TEDx talk, but it, it was such a profound moment. I'll say it again. I'm driving by this billboard, which is a huge glass of red wine and a steak, which it was up on, on Ventura Boulevard for years. And I saw it and normally it would trigger me to want to drink or if I was sober or if I was drinking, it would trigger me to go buy wine. And this time I just drove by it and I said, well, that's a billboard. Mm. My brain just computed that's a billboard. And I had to pull over because I was just weeping. I realized my brain was fixed. My brain was absolutely fixed. I, I was no longer triggered by alcohol. I wasn't thinking of alcohol. There were days that, I, that would go by and I would think, oh my God, I haven't thought about alcohol. Mm. And Coming to, just to to make, to explain to anyone who's never had a com compulsive disorder of the brain, it would be like not thinking about food. Yeah, you know, literally, I thought about alcohol all the time. Yeah, and and to have that gone, to have that space back in my head, to be myself again, and to live my life, and to start studying again, and doing Pilates, and and you know, planning trips, and to have all that time back in that I lost in my life from drinking and recovering from drinking. Really, that was all this time suddenly was back in my life that I felt so compelled to do something about this because I was enraged. I was enraged that my doctor wouldn't prescribe it. I was angry at the traditional treatment system, which is based on a revolving door policy of ineffective mm. treatment and based on relapse. It really yeah. is. It, it, it produces it relapse because that's what they want. That's their business model. And the 28 day stay is only based on what your insurance will pay for. The whole thing mm. is so outrageous to me that I said, I've got to do something. This is a generic medication. I cured myself or put myself in remission from alcoholism mm. for about $10 a month. Wow. Yeah. And that's what, that's what the Medicaid, and I didn't even use all the pills every month. So I had an excess of pills. I was able to help other people with my excess of pills. Mm. So, you know, my insurance, it was $10 for the pills. I bought a book used on Amazon for $6 and I bought some, got some medication. And that's yeah. how I, I, that's how I put this bastard in my head to sleep for so yeah. long. So I, at that point, I contacted um, the publisher of The Cure for Alcoholism, and I asked to get a hold of this Dr. Roy Escapa to thank him for saving my life, because had he not written that book, I would have been in still, or I would be worse, I would be taking naltrexone daily in the morning with abstinence, which is the way they prescribe it, which is mm. complete hogwash, because if you take it in the morning, it's going to wear off by the time you start craving, which is usually in the late afternoon, early evening. So, it, you know, the half-life is 10 to 12 hours. Why would you tell someone to block their entire day of endorphins? So that's mm -hmm. what people, doctors usually say, here's naltrexone, take it in the morning. So great, you take it in the morning, you block your breakfast, your coffee, your sex, your working out, your day of work, your friends, your camaraderie. What? Why would you want to block that? You want to mm -hmm. block the thing that you want to reduce or stop. Anyway, so that's my that was my drinking story. And then after that, that led into my advocacy life because when I contacted Dr. Roy Escapa, I said, what can I do to help this? And he said, write a book. And that's yeah. how my journey started.
Wow. Yeah. An incredible journey. And thank you so much for sharing that, Claudia. One thing I wanted to touch on actually that that you described there. So obviously you had a number of different relapses and you tried a number of different things from AA to some of the other therapies that you were talking about. What was the real difference with the medication assisted treatment program that you ultimately ended up prescribing yourself and your last attempt to cure alcohol addiction like you said to you know some of the other attempts at quitting that you had in the past i believe that the medication assisted treatment addressed 100% the biological issue of addiction mm. and and none of those other therapies or peer support that i did because aa is peer support that's all yeah. it is it's a bunch of meetings rehab is peer support in a very expensive setting uh, but you're basically doing the 12 step program in most rehabs um, very rarely do they recommend or even give you medication. Sometimes when you leave, they'll give you a prescription for naltrexone for cravings. But for me, it eliminating the biological aspect of addiction, which was the, the cravings. Cravings lead to relapse. So mm. if you get rid of cravings, both physical and mental, if you get rid of physical and mental cravings, then you can focus on your AA meeting, your therapist, your hypnotherapy, whatever. You can focus on whatever other therapy you want to mix in there is fine. If it's peer support you want, fabulous. But why not get rid of your cravings so mm. you can focus and so that you don't relapse? If you're not craving a substance, why would you go back to using it unless it's a habit? Well, with cognitive behavioral therapy or with peer support, you can work on changing your habits. So you know, even coaches can help you change your habits, but you've got to get rid of the biological aspect first. That's my humble opinion. If you address the biological aspect and then concurrently work on the deep-seated trauma and the reason why people drink, hmm. the reason why people drink, then you have a much more comprehensive program. Yeah. You're not just dealing with one aspect. Listen, I talked to death about my childhood and my life and all that. And it didn't talk away my addiction because you can't reason with addiction. It's a compulsive disorder of the brain. It's like trying to reason with somebody who's obsessive compulsive. And when I was a kid, I was a counter. You couldn't, you could logically say to me, why are you counting everything? It makes no sense, Claudia. We, hmm. Of course it doesn't make sense, but I counted everything. Yeah. It was my, it was OCD. My brain was changed. It was my way of coping. It was a coping mechanism that nobody could talk me out of doing. It was annoying, it was weird, it took up space in my brain, but I couldn't change it until it just magically went away when I was about 11 years old, thank God. But you try and reason with somebody who's a compulsive hand washer and say, you know, logically, you don't have to wash your hands 100 times a day, dear. Hmm. That's not gonna help them. Yeah, so you can't, yeah. talking, about, talking about being an alcoholic for most people triggers them to wanna drink because it's shameful. So if I sit there and recount all my horrific alcohol stories, how I, you know, did really stupid things and, and, and how I relapsed and how I shame, felt shameful and I disappointed my parents and I upset my friends, what is that going to make me feel? It's going to make me feel like drinking just mm. to, to numb the pain. So you've got to get rid of the craving and the knee jerk response to crave that substance in order to placate these emotions. Yeah. So I always think that a medication is a great way to start in treatment. But I absolutely believe in therapy at the same time, whether that's, you know, if you want to join a, a, a smart recovery or AA or get a coach or get a, a therapist, absolutely do it all. 
Yeah. Throw everything you can at this. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's really sad that there's almost a stigma associated with a medication assisted therapy, just because some people think that you're replacing one drug for another. That is, <laughs> that's the stupidest argument yeah. I've ever heard in my life because naltrexone and nalmaphene, yeah. you can derive zero pleasure from it. Absolutely. Zero pleasure. It is not suboxone or methadone. This is just naivete on the per, on the individual's part who's stating that BS. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And unfortunately, not always from the individuals, but it's for from other folks that are looking from the outside in and then being like, "Oh, these folks have to you know replace one medication for another." But completely, well, yeah. You go. Well, you go. So let me let me ask you something. Yeah. And ask them this: Would you tell a diabetic? to forego insulin and instead go to meetings to talk about their eating exactly. and about their diabetes. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I'm in complete agreement with yourself, Corey, because I think addiction should be reframed as this chronic disease. It's not a choice, right? It's a chronic disease. It's not a choice. And look, and look what the model is. We're forcing people to hit rock bottom. Rock mm. bottom is barbaric. It's inhumane. But would you tell a diabetic to hit rock bottom before you give them insulin or a I, heart patient to reach rock bottom until yeah. you give them a statin. No, mm. we're, we're punishing. This is punishment for, for addicts saying you are so unworthy of medical treatment that we're going to make you lose your house, your job, your relationships, everything so that you learn a lesson. Mm. I mean, where did this come from? Where did this punitive so-called treatment come from? This is not treatment. This is punishment. Yeah. And it is because we don't understand addiction and we look at addicts as, as, as weak and undisciplined. And why would you need a medication to fix that? Well, I can tell you because I've had OCD. I have experienced an eating disorder and I've experienced alcoholism. And I will tell you in all three incidents, my brain changed. I was not the normal Claudia. Mm. I was doing something compulsive that I could not control. So. If that's the truth and that this is a brain disease, which the American uh, Association of Medical Association labeled it in 1956, it's a disease of the brain, then why are we treating it with talk therapy only? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just a ton of research to support the medication-assisted treatment program and the medication-assisted treatment side of things. And it's what we're trying to do here at Quit Genius. We're trying to really make this easily accessible, cost-effective for everyone out there and being able to access this from the comfort of their own home with the rise of you know telemedicine and digital health. So in complete agreement with you there, Claudia, more needs to be done because unfortunately what's currently being done is not cutting the mustard is nowhere near enough and people are suffering as a result do you know i saw a statistic the other day that that alcohol use disorder amongst women has risen 68 percent in the last like six years eight years wow and during the pandemic incidents of alcohol use disorder i have people who were light or social drinkers when the pandemic started and now they are full-blown alcohol use mm. disorder they are some of them are physically dependent within one year of heavy drinking. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is talk about a skyrocketing pandemic within a pandemic. And the way we're treating it is antiquated. It's from a hundred years ago. It's really, it's, it, it's absurd. And people like you, providers, telemedicine providers, if one medication doesn't work, try another one, try a combination of them. I mean, right now we have six really viable, great medications for alcohol mm. use disorder. 
and they're being completely underutilized. And you're right. It's so easy to sit here from home and you can tell somebody, make a call, have a, a, a FaceTime or Zoom meeting with a provider, get the medication delivered to your, 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 your pharmacy the next day or the same day and start this program. You yeah. can have breathalyzers. Your data can be sent in to telemedicine companies. You can have a coach online. I mean, there's no reason to not treat this at all. And I always tell people, ask yourself this one question. Do you think about you're drinking. Does it ever cross your mind that you're drinking too much? Even if you think about it, that means there's an issue. You can also ask yourself, does alcohol adversely affect any part of your life? That could be your workout routine, your go getting up in the morning and feeling good, your relationships, anything, your financial state. Does it adversely affect anything? If you say yes, then maybe it's time to decrease or stop drinking. Yeah. And these medications can address both. If you want to decrease so that you're just the occasional uh, social drinker, you can do that. If your goal is abstinence, you can be helped to achieve yeah. that goal in a lot easier way than white knuckling and praying. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really, really good point there, Claudia, because unfortunately, the folks that are in that risky category are often the folks that, you know, don't get the support or don't even know they need the support. So they, they're drinking a lot and almost like you said, feeling the side effects of drinking a lot. They're almost reliant on drinking, but because it's a part of their day-to-day -day life and because they're functional, and in most cases they are functional, they're probably working well, they're still maintaining relationships with their family, they haven't gone out and, and sought support when actually they do need the help, they do need the support, and they only go out and seek the support. And these folks only go out and seek the support when they hit that rock bottom. And that should not be the case. It should not be the case. Only 10% of people seek treatment at, that, that have an alcohol use disorder. 10% of them seek treatment. The other 90%, most of them don't seek treatment because they're afraid that they're going to be told that they have to be abstinent for the rest of their life. Mm. You don't have to be abstinent for the rest of your life. You can do something like the Sinclair method and just reduce your drinking and drink normally. It's I call it the condom for drinking. Let's say you're 25 and you're hitting the pubs too hard and you're, you're just drinking way, way too much. You have alcoholism in your family. It's in your genes. You know it. You're using it more and more as a coping mechanism. You can start taking it before you lose everything, before you develop a full-blown AUD, before you, you know, become physically dependent on it because your tolerance is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're going to need more and more and more to achieve the same feeling as you had the first drink. So nip it in the bud now. Don't mm. waste your late 30s, early 40s like I did. That's what I tell all of my younger clients is get this under control now. I tell parents, you know, if you've got a teenager who's binge drinking, do something about it now before mm. they get in a car accident or get raped or something. This is a preventative disease. It's treatable and preventative. Why aren't we putting more impetus and, and structure and financial uh, uh, gain into preventing alcoholism? Education, prevent it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of aspects to this that make me very sad. But the, but the great news is nobody has to go through what I went through. Anybody yeah. in the UK, in the US, and parts of Europe, all of Australia, you can find a provider, all of Canada, you can find a provider that will support you in doing the Sinclair method. Yeah, and, absolutely. And every single state in the United States. When I started, there was one doctor. And now, thanks to you know telemedicine, but also the work that my nonprofit foundation has done, the entire country is covered. 
with providers. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you mentioned that the pandemic as well. And the stat I read actually uh, very recently was alcohol sales have been up 25%. With all that you've mentioned, the fact that the infrastructure needs to improve, the fact that, you know, prevention needs to get better, especially the education around it and the access to it. What do you think that the impact of the pandemic is going to have, especially in relation to alcoholism in the next 12 months? I think it's going to be a, a real, it already is an inc- incredibly huge problem. And I believe the alcohol companies owe it to the public to support foundations like C3 Foundation that educate people how to drink safely. Mm. That is something that I've, I've been, you know, for years, I'm thinking, why aren't they pouring money into harm reduction? Because not, I cannot, I cannot imagine that a tequila company or a beer company really genuinely wants people to lose everything and become alcoholics. I, I, don't, I, I don't see that. They want people to enjoy it safely. That's their big logo. You know, enjoy safe with responsibly. Enjoy responsibly. Well, then support measures that, that, that talk about and educate harm reduction. Mm. We are no longer in an abstinence base. We cannot expect people to quit, especially young people, for the rest of their lives. I cannot tell a 25-year-old, you're never going to drink for the rest of your life. And that that's just not, it, it's not realistic at all. It's not a mm. realistic goal. But reducing the harm of alcohol is a very realistic goal. And it's achievable with medications yeah. or combinations of medication and cognitive behavioral therapy. I believe I believe strongly that the pandemic is showing us that, that, you know, you, you get alcohol delivered, people are going to start, they're going to keep that habit up after the pandemic, because now they're getting the alcohol delivered. It's easy. There's no shame in going to the local liquor store and you have to keep getting the same bottle of whiskey. And now you're shame, you're filled with shame and you're kind of embarrassed. So you start hitting other supermarkets. That's no longer needed. You get it delivered to your home. So that ease and access is going to be a habit that people are going to stay, stick with. And that's really detrimental to their health because it's mm. too easy. It's way too easy. So no longer are they just drinking when they go out on the weekends or to a fancy meal or something. Now they're drinking every night. And, and now they're having Zoom meetings, which they can stop at 4 p.m. So they're drinking earlier. Believe me, this is something I'm seeing that the, that the p- pandemic started and it's not going to stop. A lot of people are going to continue working from home. Alcohol's in the refrigerator. Now they're going to start hitting it a little bit early because they have a hangover. So they're going to take a little hair of the dog, uh, maybe a beer, because nobody can smell their breath. Yeah. Nobody can see that they're drinking. You know, they put a little visine in their eyes and, and, and they just do their Zoom meetings. I mean, this is a real problem. And then they start hiding. And hiding is a very, very addictive action. People who hide or sneak get a reinforcement, a reward from hiding and sneaking. It's almost like you're getting away with something. Sneaky behavior, when they call that addict behavior, it's because you are releasing endorphins by hiding. It's the same thing mm. as lying, stealing. And what that's the nice thing about these opiate antagonists. In, in the UK, they use nalmaphene in Europe, uh, nalmaphene and naltrexone. In the US, it's naltrexone. But they every single time you drink on it, what it's doing is it's stopping the reinforcement of alcohol. So mm. you take a tablet and it and you wait an hour so it can get into your bloodstream and your brain. And then you engage in the behavior you want to decrease or stop. In this case, drinking could be gambling. Um, so you take that drink and instead of this massive endorphin release occurring and then going and hooking onto the opioid receptor, what it does it is it bounces off. 
Mm. So you don't get that reinforcement from alcohol. You can still get uh, drunk, you still get buzzed, and you still get the relaxation effects and the taste of the alcohol, but you don't get the reinforcement of it. And what does that mean? That's like the opposite of Pavlov's dog. So every time you drink, you're not getting that that reward. So you drink less, just mm. like the dog stopped salivating when it heard the bell because it wasn't being fed. So you keep doing this, and over a few months uh, time, you suddenly say, eh, you know, I'd rather have a cup of tea. And that's what we want. We want you to unlearn the behavior of drinking to excess. We want to give you back that off button. And that's yeah. what the beautiful thing about TSM is. Yeah, 100%. And I think I'm definitely in agreement with yourself there. It can become a slippery slope, right? One drink can become 10, 10 can become many more. And Claudia, you've touched on this briefly before, but please tell us a little bit more about some of the work that, that you've been doing in helping support people who are struggling with addiction. Well, the first thing I did is I wrote a book called Babylon Confidential about my journey through Hollywood and, and alcohol misuse. And then um, I made a film for the loved ones of people who are suffering mostly, but it's also for people who are, who are looking for a solution themselves. It's called One Little Pill. Hmm. And that documentary is under an hour long, so it's very palatable for our short attention span. It explains the science behind TSM, and it shows real people on it. So I made that documentary. And then the next step I did was in 2013, I launched the C3 Foundation. And c3foundation.org, it's just two women, myself and my executive director, Jenny Williamson, and to get in a handful of volunteers. And for the past almost eight years, we've been the only source of everything Sinclair Method. We are, um, there was the Sinclair Method Europe, but that one shut down. So now we are the sole website, um, which is basically anything you need, a provider, a telemedicine or in-house doctor. Um, you can get a free drink log for Android or iPhone. You can get peer support or coaching sessions there. You can get our free weekly meetings where people on TSM from all over the world meet up. Anything you need, including mm. the scientific research so you can show your doctor, anything you need is on that website, the C3 Foundation. And um, last year during the pandemic, I launched YourSinclairMethod.com, which is a group of TSM coaches, where, and myself included, where we coach people on TSM, give them the extra support that they need. I also wrote another book called Journeys, which is a collection of stories from people who've been on the Sinclair Method and how it changed their life, good and bad, people who complied, who didn't comply. It's really an educational tool for people who are starting TSM so they can read about other people and hmm. maybe maybe um, learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, so that's what I've been doing. I, I did my TED Talk, which has almost 3 million views, um, which has really touched a lot of people's lives and really helped a lot of people. I would say the majority of people who find me have found me because of that TEDx talk. And I have mm. to thank the London Business School for that. They they allowed me to to write that speech and, and do it on their stage. So yeah. I'm very grateful to them. And my life is filled with coaching sessions and advocacy. You know, it's my dream to to see this as the go-to method for anyone who's suffering from from alcohol misuse. Amazing work, honestly, and I think a very an incredible list of all the things that you're doing and all the people that you're helping support. So thank you for all the hard work that you're doing there, Claudia. And um, just finally, what advice do you have for those people out there that are suffering with addiction? The first thing I would do is some research. I would I would say if you're if you have a loved one who's suffering 
um, please look into the Sinclair method. It's easy. It's affordable. Um, you can do it either simply or comprehensively. It's private. So you don't have to sit, you know, stand up and say, I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. There's no shame, no stigma. You can mm. get that generic medication. You can do this method at home with the help of my foundation, C3 Foundation. I would tell somebody who's suffering to not give up hope. Mm. And that if I could come through what I went through and I was, when, when people say, this is a, an interesting thing. People say, well, I wasn't that bad of an alcoholic because I didn't get a DUI. I always tell them, you know what? It, it, nobody can tell me any stories that are going to um, make me feel like they have one up on me. I, I was a very bad alcoholic. I'll say it right there. I wasn't a bad person, but my disease was very pronounced. Mm. And, and I don't want anyone to get to that point. So if you're just noticing that you're drinking too much or you're becoming more in the habit of drinking every night, or you don't like the way you feel in the morning, do something about it. Now, please don't wait till it gets worse because when it gets worse and alcohol is a progressive disease, alcoholism is a is progressive disease, it'll be more and more difficult to stop it. But most importantly, find a support group. Um, you know, do not give up hope. Find a medication that works for you. Get, get some online um, support, peer support, or a coach or anything. And just... Just be confident that you have the power to change this. You really do. I mean, I cannot tell you how many thousands of people I've worked with over the past decade plus. And I've seen people who literally their lives have changed around from drinking 24 hours a day to having a vibrant, full, active, healthy life wow. within the course of like six months. Mm -hmm. I'm not kidding you. And as long as you stay compliant and you're motivated, you're going to do great. You've got this. Amazing. Thank you so much for that, Claudia. And thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you spending the time with me and sharing your wonderful stories and, and advice as well. So very much appreciate you taking the time out today, Claudia. Well, I can't tell you how much I appreciate um, the platform to be able to hopefully reach somebody who's going to hear this and think about a loved one or themselves. So thank you. And thanks for the good work you're doing to help people. So that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you for tuning in. You can find out more about Quit Genius on quitgenius.com and the podcast on missionrecoverypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed our content, I'd really appreciate if you could subscribe and consider leaving us a review. Thank you.